As we continue our Bible study in the Gospel of John, we pick up chapter 1, verse 19, which states as follows, quote, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? The theme of testimony returns when John the Baptist is confronted by the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin who opposed Jesus. Since John the Baptist was a priest and prophet, he was particularly seen to be a threat. Context here is helpful. Luke chapter 2 verse 38 indicates that there were many at the time who were, quote, looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is because Israel was subject to the domination of pagan Rome. The righteous Simeon, in the same chapter, describes redemption as the consolation of Israel. What could this consolation or redemption be but the coming of the Messiah that had been predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18? So when John the Baptist begins preaching in the desert and exhibiting prophetic signs, many, as Luke states in chapter 3 verse 15, quote, were in expectation, and all men questioned in their hearts concerning John whether perhaps he was the Christ, end of quote. Also important here is the concern among Jewish leaders that the many would-be messiahs that had arisen with a following and caused fervor among the people might alert the Romans to a potential revolt that should be quelled immediately. Ironically, this would happen in 70 AD when the Roman armies under General Titus destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. Chapter 1, verse 20 of this opening chapter of the Gospel of John states, quote, He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The double use of the word confessed surrounding John the Baptist's denial that he is the Christ emphasizes his strong witness testimony to Jesus. The term Christ in Greek, Christos, means the Anointed One, in the Hebrew, Messiah. Since there were many different opinions as to the end-time figure who would usher in the day of the Lord, the priests and Levites asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? This accords with the prophet Malachi, who said, quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Malachi chapter 3 verses 23 to 24 and Sirach chapter 48 verse 10 quote, You are destined, it is written, in time to come to put an end to wrath before the day of the Lord. End of quote. Indeed, Jesus will himself say of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 verse 14, quote, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. But John the Baptist emphatically says, I am not. Are you the prophet? is the next query. Here, the priests and Levites have the famous statement by Moses in mind in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 19. Quote, A prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen, to him you shall listen. 
This is exactly what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear again the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, lest we die. And the Lord said to me, This was well said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their kinsmen, and will put my words into his mouth. He shall tell them all that I command him. If any man will not listen to my words which he speaks in my name, I myself will make him answer for it. End of quote. But again, John the Baptist issues a denial. When pressed for his identity, John the Baptist states, quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Here is an important point in terms of evangelization. John the Baptist does not provide lineage, social standing, or his family tree, but rather equates his identity with mission. I am the voice. John the Baptist will not be silent, nor back down through intimidation either from the Judean leaders who, in effect, are acting as agents for the prosecution, nor later in confronting King Herod and his incestuous relationship with his brother's wife that is causing scandal to the people. The quote from Isaiah, makes straight the way of the Lord, referred to the practice of preparing for ancient rulers who would process from distant lands by removing obstacles, straightening highways, and making rough places smooth, but applies metaphorically to the final return of the Lord. Here, John the Baptist is calling the people to prepare their hearts through repentance for the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 24, baptism is introduced for the first time that will be a dominant theme in John's Gospel. The priests and Levites asked John the Baptist, quote, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In verse 26, John answers, quote, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There were, at the time, self-administered baptisms in operation, some for induction of Gentile proselytes into Judaism, others for declaring oneself righteous as in the Qumran community. But here John the Baptist is saying that the chosen people themselves must be baptized in preparation for the coming of the king, and he, that is John the Baptist, will be the one administering the washing. This prompted the Pharisees to inquire by what authority John the Baptist is claiming to justify or warrant such an action. John's response, again, is to decrease his standing. In comparison to the one John the Baptist will bear witness to, he is less than a slave, for only slaves would untie the thong of sandals. Implicit in this claim is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, quote, I will sprinkle clean water upon you to cleanse you from all your impurities, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and place a new spirit within you, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts, end of quote. 
Mention of the Jordan River in chapter 1, verse 28, where John was baptizing, has great significance for the new creation. In Joshua chapter 3, the Israelites completed their journey to the Promised Land by crossing over the Jordan River, taking with them the Ark of the Covenant. Through a great miracle of parting similar to Moses and the Red Sea, Joshua led the people on dry ground into freedom from physical slavery. John baptizes in the same Jordan River to prepare the Jews for a new exodus, thereby pointing forward to the baptism by water and the Spirit that Jesus Christ will introduce in John chapter 3 to bring us from slavery to sin to a new life of spiritual freedom. As the Synoptic Gospels show, when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, what parts is not water but the heavens, opening a way for our entrance into eternal life? See Matthew chapter 3 verse 16, Mark chapter 1 verse 10, and Luke chapter 3 verse 21. Verse 29 of chapter 1 states, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here we have on the second day of the new creation, John the Baptist again witnessing to Jesus. The term Lamb of God is the first of many names John will introduce in this chapter as regards Jesus and brings us back to the Passover of Exodus chapter 12, the tenth plague, which initiated the exodus of Israel from Egypt. On the instruction by God through Moses, an unblemished lamb was to be sacrificed, its blood put on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes, so that the avenging angel would pass over that home and the firstborn son be saved, as long as the lamb was eaten that night. The Passover lamb will again take prominence in John chapter 6, when Jesus at the Last Supper transforms the Jewish Passover into the sacrament of the Eucharist by becoming the sacrificial victim by whose body and blood we are fed and redeemed. St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, recognizes Jesus in this role, as he states, quote, For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Also in view is the sacrificial lamb of Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, where Abraham was put to the test by God, who commanded that he sacrifice his only son Isaac as a holocaust on Mount Moriah. When Isaac asked his father, Here are the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the holocaust? Abraham answers, God himself will provide the sheep for the holocaust. In a sense, Isaac's question is fully answered by John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 as he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. At the holy sacrifice of the Mass, after the bread and wine are consecrated, the congregation pleads by way of song three times, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. It is only then that the priest, holding up Christ's body and blood, replies, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to his supper. And the congregation responds in the words of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, 
but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Another possible reference to Lamb of God is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, the fourth servant song, where the suffering servant is compared to a lamb that is led to the slaughter to obtain forgiveness of sins and redemption of the people. This connects to the fact that, according to Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 to 42, each morning and evening a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch reads these words of Isaiah chapter 53, and when the deacon Philip asks, Do you understand what you are reading? The eunuch replies, How can I unless someone guides me? Philip explains the passage as fulfilled in Christ, and thereafter the eunuch is baptized. In the book of Revelation, also authored by John, the term Lamb of God is so precious it is repeated no less than 29 times. Since several scholars consider the Apocalypse to be a portrait of the eternal liturgy celebrated in heaven by all the angels and redeemed saints, the title seems especially appropriate and fitting. In verse 30, John the Baptist repeats, quote, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, for he was before me, referring to the words pre-existence that John expressed in chapter 1 verse 15, now particularized as Jesus. The statement by John the Baptist in verse 31 that he did not know Jesus could refer to the physical distance separating their families. Although cousins, Jesus was raised in the north of Galilee, while John the Baptist was raised south of Jerusalem. As well, John the Baptist lived isolated in the desert for about 20 years, and according to some scholars, could have been raised by the monastic Qumran community, which again lived isolated and in the south. More likely, though, John the Baptist is referring to his not knowing Jesus as the Messiah until the sign was manifest as set forth in verses 32 to 34. Quote, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That the Spirit descended and remained on Jesus at his baptism is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, quote, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, quote, I have put my Spirit upon him. But it also anticipates the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, that prophesies the outpouring of the Spirit that will transform our stony hearts into hearts of flesh. See also Joel chapter 2, verse 28. This comes to completion in the early church at Pentecost and the sacrament of baptism. Although the Holy Spirit dwells with the Word in the Trinitarian relations eternally, now in time the same Spirit hovers over and remains on Jesus in his humanity. John chapter 1, verse 34 highlights the strength of John the Baptist's testimony and gives us an example of our own call to evangelization.
Quote, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. End of quote. Here we have another title for Jesus in addition to Lamb of God, one that harmonizes with the synoptic account of Jesus' baptism, where the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. John chapter 1, verse 35, marks the first ingathering of the apostles of Jesus, when John the Baptist, on the next day, that is, the third day of the new creation, standing with two of his disciples, looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples, on hearing this, follow Jesus, who turns and says, What do you seek? The one disciple is identified in verse 40 as Andrew, and the other unnamed disciple is likely John, the author of the fourth gospel, given that he makes specific mention of the tenth hour when this occurred in verse 39. This prior account of the call of the first apostles in Judea gives welcome background to the later synoptic tradition where Jesus begins calling the apostles in Galilee of the north, given especially that they immediately dropped their nets, that is, their livelihoods, and followed Jesus. This would make more sense had the disciples made a prior commitment in John chapter 1. The question by Jesus, What do you seek? is addressed to all people of every generation, including us today. Do we, first and foremost, seek power, pleasure, esteem, and material wealth, or a relationship with God himself. Jesus will, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, go on to say, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. Notice that Jesus does not impose or force by way of threat, but simply proposes. But that proposal or question is the divine initiative, that calls for a response. In this case, it is a response of respect as the two disciples call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, and inquiry as they ask, where are you staying? This signals more than a mere passing interest, rather a lengthy time of learning from the one John the Baptist pointed as greater than himself, indeed the Lamb of God. In verse 39, Jesus gives the classic foundation of discipleship. Come and see. They stay with Jesus until the tenth hour, or four in the afternoon, that is, all day. One can only imagine what Jesus taught them. But we get a glimpse in Luke chapter 24, when after Jesus' resurrection, he walked with two other disciples on the road and explained the scriptures in terms of himself, opening their minds so that their hearts were burning within them. Indeed, as verse 40 states, Andrew immediately goes to find his brother Simon, saying to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. As soon as Andrew hears the good news, he must share it. Keeping it to himself is unthinkable. To introduce others to Jesus is at the heart of the new evangelization, and Andrew shows us the way. In John chapter 6, verse 8, he introduces the boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus, which initiates 
the great miracle of the feeding of 5,000 that in turn prepares the way for Jesus' teaching on the Eucharist. In John chapter 12, verse 22, Andrew introduces the Greeks to Jesus, which is the turning point Jesus was waiting for to begin his passion, that is, the hour of the Son of Man to be glorified. So with his brother, Andrew doesn't just tell Simon about Jesus and leave it at that. He brings him into contact with who he knows to be the Messiah. Jesus, in verse 42, looks at him and says, So you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. A change of name in the scriptures means a change of character and mission. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, Abram, meaning exalted father, becomes Abraham, father of many, noting his new role in salvation history. Likewise, the name Jacob, meaning he who grasps at the heel, is changed in Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, to Israel, meaning prince of God and one who sees God. Here in John chapter 1, verse 42, Jesus changes the name Simon to Cephas, which renders the Aramaic word kepha, meaning sizable rock. The Greek equivalent is Peter, which John translates for the benefit of his audience. That Jesus looked at him and then changed his name can be taken as Jesus seeing who Simon was and who he could become, not just a fisherman, but the foundation stone upon which the new covenant would be built, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. The same possibility of a new character or mission based on our relationship with Jesus exists when we come and see and trust in God's providence. John chapter 1 verse 43 marks the fourth day of the new creation, with Jesus heading north to Galilee, where he finds Philip and says simply, Follow me. Now it is Jesus who directly invites apostles rather than John the Baptist or one of the other disciples. Like Andrew, who cannot keep quiet in the face of such good news, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The mention of Moses and the prophet connects Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ, a favorite theme of John. The example given of Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 19 was well known to the Jews of the time, but the reference to Nazareth causes Nathanael to become skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a small, out-of-the-way, unimportant town never mentioned in the Old Testament, and for Nathanael, the Messiah could not possibly have been raised in such a place. In response, Philip now simply repeats the words of Jesus, Come and see. Notice again the humility of God, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, who is the fullness of majesty and glory, condescends to take the lowest place in assuming our flesh, weak, transitory, subject to illness and death, born in a cave because there is no room in the inn, and raised in the obscurity of Nazareth, also that he can raise us up by his death, 
resurrection and ascension to heaven. In John chapter 1 verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Here, Jesus contrasts Nathanael with the Old Testament figure of Jacob, who in Genesis chapter 32 verse 28 deceives his brother Esau and supplants the family blessing. It is interesting that when Jacob wrestled the angel in Genesis and prevailed, his name is changed to one who sees God. Here in John chapter 1, Nathanael, face to face with God in the flesh, is promised in verse 51, You will see heaven and earth opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus here is enacting a new creation. He will build a new Israel, not on the deception of fallen man, but the beatitude of those who are without guile, such as Nathanael. One recalls Psalm 32, verse 1, quote, Blessed the man whose fault is forgiven, whose sin is blotted out. Happy that man whom Yahweh accuses of no guilt, whose spirit is incapable of deceit. End of quote. By his blood shed on the cross, Jesus will forgive sins, indeed enact the sacrament of reconciliation, so that this beatitude can be realized. When Nathanael asks, How do you know me? Jesus responds in verse 48 and 49, quote, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In response, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. But why would Jesus, seeing Philip under a fig tree, elicit such an utter statement of faith and two messianic titles? Some scholars point out that a fig tree in the Old Testament symbolized peace in the messianic age. See Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10. As well, the word Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, is linked to the branch that shall grow from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. That is another messianic term, figurative of the descent from David's house. Thus some speculate that Nathanael put the pieces together to realize Jesus' identity. Other scholars simply leave the matter at Jesus having prior and intimate knowledge of Nathanael's heart while he sat under the fig tree that only Nathanael could confirm and which caused him to come to faith. As Psalm 139 states, quote, Lord, you have probed me. You know me. You know when I sit and stand. You understand my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. Such knowledge is beyond me, far too lofty for me to reach. The title, Son of God, links back to such Old Testament passages as 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 17, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and Psalm 2, verse 7. That is, the promise by God to continue the Davidic dynasty in his lineage that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. King of Israel is a messianic title from Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 15 that will be repeated by the crowds waving their palm branches in John chapter 12 verse 13 when Jesus rides triumphant into Jerusalem.
In John chapter 1, verses 50 to 51, Jesus replies, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The greater things than these will start immediately on the seventh day of the new creation when Jesus changes water into wine in John chapter 2 verse 1, and not just some wine, but the best of wine at the wedding feast at Cana. Since the you in verse 51 is plural, not just Nathaniel, but all followers of Jesus are included. John alludes to the Old Testament story of Jacob, who in Genesis chapter 28 verses 11 to 15 rested his head on a stone and dreamed of a ladder standing on the ground with its top reaching to heaven, with angels ascending and descending on it, and God standing above it saying to Jacob, I am with you. Jacob, upon waking, says, quote, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. End of quote. Jacob then takes the stone and builds a monument to the Lord and pours oil on it. This messianic prophecy is fulfilled in Christ, who calls himself Son of Man in John chapter 1, verse 51, and who is the staircase to the Father, the perfect mediator who bridges heaven and earth through his dual nature of divinity and humanity, united in the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Jesus is the true gate to heaven, as he will say explicitly in John chapter 10, verse 7, and the house of God, as he says in John chapter 2, verse 19. The title Son of Man used by Jesus is likely a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the heavenly figure who comes on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and is given authority, glory, and sovereignty over all peoples, nations, and men of every language, and whose dominion will never end, and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. The stone will become Peter, upon whom the house of God, that is the church, will be built and who is given the keys that unlock the gates of heaven. This concludes our comments on this remarkable opening chapter of the Gospel of John.